Empowering Independence podcast is a conversation about the RIA space hosted by Austin Philbin with friends and guests that include individuals spanning the entire spectrum of wealth management. A high energy, insightful creation, this show aims to demystify many of the myths of financial services and provide insights, fresh ideas, and a true look into what it takes to be a successful wealth management entrepreneur. Austin will ask the questions that need to be answered by any firm looking to drive scale, efficiency, and enterprise value. Hello, and welcome to the Powering Independence podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin, and today I'll be joined by Megan Philbin, a consultant at the firm Templar Advisors. Megan has had a very interesting and extremely successful Wall Street career as a bond trader with Lehman Brothers and then Barclays. Throughout the years, she's been a passionate leader on human capital initiatives and spent countless hours off the trading desk furthering agendas beyond bonds. I asked Megan to join me today to talk about women's initiatives within the financial services space. During her time as an institutional trader, she took a leading role internally launching networking opportunities for young women across various segments of the firms that she worked at and for driving connectivity between female traders and spearheading an agenda to bring more women into trading seats. Hello, Megan. How are you doing? What's up? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So I'd like to start... I don't also get identified as your cousin... Oh, yeah. No. Well, we're going to get into that. Yes, the, the <laughs> same last name is true. We are having a conversation between cousins, so this should be fun. And uh, also for some context for the listeners, I'd like to start with a story, if that's okay with you, Meg. Uh, oh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this could get deadly quickly. When I first came to New York City... In 2006, it was, so 14 or so years ago. Uh, obviously, I was very new to New York. I had spent some time in Japan, and you were already a very successful trader at Lehman Brothers, and I remember uh, meeting up with you in the city and you being a wonderful guide and host and uh, took the time to, you know, in, invite me to different places, introduce me to some of your friends. And I just remember thinking back at that time um, how proud I was of you and how successful you were at that time. And you've continued to have great success throughout your life. And I, I just wanted to say thank you for uh, everything that you've done for me since we've uh, kind of reconnected in New York City. And obviously, we spent a lot of time growing up as well. So, um, again, I just want to say that I'm really proud of you, and I, I thought it was uh, wonderful the way that you treated me when I first got to New York City. Well, thank you. I think uh, you also dragged me to Brooklyn around then, too, right? I did, <laughs> yes. I, I lived in Brooklyn, so I did, in fact, make you come to Brooklyn, which is always a good yeah. time. Yeah, back then, that was Brooklyn was uh, a different world. Today, you wouldn't even recognize it. No. No, it definitely has changed. It definitely has changed. So I think today's today's conversation is one that I'm super excited about. I think it's not I think I know that it's incredibly important. And I'll start with just the, the general theme. And we're going to talk about <clears throat> many different uh, 
uh, topics, but the general theme is, you know, how do we positively impact diversity and create change within not only the financial service sector, but just professionally overall? And, you know, in order to start that conversation, as I stated, you've been extremely successful in financial services and then uh, post-financial services in, in your current uh, occupation as a coach and communications consultant. Just thinking back to when you graduated from Georgetown and you moved to New York City, what are some of the things that you did early in your career that you felt set you up to be uh, successful? I think when I look back, and, and you'd probably agree this goes back to way before college and, and entering the workforce, but I think I was always a really competitive person. Uh, I, I know for a fact that was instilled in me by my dad, <laughs> and whether that was on the basketball court, the field, in the classroom, or eventually in the office, I think I was somebody who was always goal-oriented, approached things as winning and losing. Um, you know, I, I remember several times over the years early in my career where the answer was no, and to me, that wasn't an acceptable answer. What I was okay with was not right now. You know, right. if you were asking for more responsibility or trying to change roles and your boss said no, I would push back and say, if not right now, then when? Uh, and that was something that I think, and I'm not sure, that, I'm not saying I necessarily did it perfectly. There are, of course, things I still look back on and regret, but um, having that vision and, and approaching things in a competitive way, I think, is something that, that lends itself to success in financial services. Um, you yourself were a college athlete. We used to hire countless numbers of college athletes because that tended to lend to uh, successful individuals who, who approached work and a career in a way where um, you didn't just accept the status quo and there was always more that you were striving for. That's a great answer. Pulling pulling out a few items that you mentioned, I think maybe deserving of a little bit more conversation. I really like that thought around asking for more responsibility, because I think that's key, doing it in the right manner. And when you get a no, not becoming frustrated and maybe looking at the either the situation or your manager as a negative, but looking at it as a an opportunity to ask a second question, which is, if now is not the time for me to take on more responsibilities or to move up, well then, not only when is the right time for me to do that, but what are the things that I need to work on in order to prepare me to take that next step? And I think those two things, understanding the time frame, but also asking for clear delineation or, or clear definition of the things that, that you need to work on in order to get to that next level is incredibly important. I don't know if you agree with yeah, that or a, not. Yeah, I think exactly. You need a game plan, and that game plan needs to be both the player and the coach on the same page. I mean, I'll just give you a specific example. When I graduated college, I joined Lehman Brothers, and I did not join the trading desk right away. I was in um, more of a middle and back office 
analyst program that for two years was a rotational program. I spent eight months across three different groups, all within the finance and the CFO uh, division of the organization. And you know, initially coming out of college, I wasn't making as much money as the people in investment banking and right. in sales and trading. But I looked at that as an opportunity because I didn't know anything about an investment bank. And I looked at the chance to move across three different areas at a very high level, and that allowed me to truly understand how this firm works, what are the nuts and bolts of the organization. I wound up really, really lucky with my first and second rotations. In my second rotation, for eight months, I worked in a group called Product Control, and we did the books and records for the trading desk. And that was my first exposure to the trading floor, to um, mostly men um, whose jobs, you know, they sat right in the heart and the energy of um, the entire firm. And when news hit, they knew about it first. And that's where you know, I could have sat in my seat up on the 14th floor and just done my spreadsheets and gone home at the end of the day. But I really used that time and that role to spend time on the trading floor. I started asking to attend meetings, and I started soaking up as much knowledge as I could. And I would come in on weekends and put together reports that was absolutely not part of my job description. Nobody asked me to do it. But I saw an opportunity and something that the business needed, and I thought I could give them. And that was something that I just did you know, on my own. At the end of that rotation, the trading desk had seen my sort of fire, and they, they liked it, and they asked me to join the desk. They, they wanted me to move internally and join their business. And I received the answer, no from HR. They said, mm. you're in a two-year program. We can't let you out early. That that violates the integrity of the program, and everybody else would want to do the same thing. Right. And as a reward for being a good, uh, <laughs> a good analyst, I was then shipped off to Jersey City for my last <laughs> eight-month rotation. <laughs> Surprise. And here, Enjoy. Right. And, and, and here I went from, from really loving what I was doing and knowing that I would figured out what I wanted to do next, and I was sent to do expense management for the legal division uh, in a non-headquarters building with a far longer commute and no friends in the office. So that was really a slap in the face. Um, but, you know, I tried to learn what I could out of that role, and I had a wonderful manager at the time, and the quality of life was a lot better. You know, it was certainly um, a little bit of a lighter position. And, and at the end of that, you know, we had a game plan that I was going to come back to my previous seat, and I was going to spend about a year there and uh, do as much as I could and, and look as much as I could and uh, and when an opportunity arose again, I would then be given a chance to transition to the trading desk. And that is what happened. But it certainly wasn't in the order that I wanted it to. <laughs> sure. But in, in listening to you describe that story, I, I think about a few things. The first, which I, I love your insight into, early on in everyone's career, or maybe not even early on, in, in people's professional lives, there's always going to be a question as to, 
taking the money or taking a path that's going to provide more compensation. And again, this this question may not be as black and white for everyone, but there will come a time where something like this will occur, where it's taking a path for more compensation or taking a path which will allow you to develop skills based on more responsibility and you have to make that choice and looking at the position what's critically important is it to take a is it to take a job or an opportunity where you're going to learn a ton work for someone that that wants you to grow or take something where you're going to get paid 10 or 15,000 dollars doing the same thing that you're doing before do you see that a lot is that something that that you had to deal with in your career or how do you answer what's more important money or experience I think that ultimately comes down to the individual and his or her values. For me, I always um, I think I knew in my gut, as I, if I think back to that senior year in college when I was interviewing for jobs, I would go on these interviews for investment banking roles or for sales and trading positions, and I just didn't really like the people I was meeting, and I right. didn't feel um, a genuine connection with them. And when I met the folks who were – running and who had been through this Lehman Brothers program that I ultimately joined, I felt like I found my home. And for me, it allowed me to build the confidence that I needed to then take the next step. I say all the time, if I had gone into, uh, you know, the trading floor in that den of wolves straight out of college, if you, you recall this, when we were in school, you didn't necessarily have to have an internship as a seventh grader uh, right. to get a job on Wall Street. You know, I mean, the, the hiring and the, the intern and the full-time hiring process has been accelerated so much. I, I was studying abroad spring semester in Dublin and realized, oh, I don't know how I'm going to get an internship in New York from Dublin. Uh, I might as well just do another study abroad program this summer. <laughs> And figure out the job thing senior year, and right. and because of that, I didn't have the experience that some of my classmates did of having worked in New York and really figuring out what I wanted to do. And I absolutely gave up, uh, you know, T plus zero first year out of college wasn't that much money, but over the next three years was a substantial amount of money. But I felt better about my decision and I could sleep at night and I liked going to work. And, you know, that's just, I think the other important point for young people to think about is, you know, your career is absolutely a journey and where you start will never likely be where you end. It's not a straight line. Yep. You know, the other thing that I took from your story and it has has a ton of parallels to a conversation I had maybe three or four episodes ago with Frank Zecca, who is a financial advisor to some of the top athletes like Steph Curry and Chris Paul and Ryan Cafaro, who is a uh, professional coach for individuals like Frankie Edgar uh, and Marlon Marias. I asked both of them, I said, you know, what is the difference between some of the individuals that you work with? How come they become so successful? And, you know, the baseline answers pretty much all ended up in the same location, which was they just work harder than everyone else. They're just more driven and focused on the things that they want to have happen. And so in your, your story about 
<clears throat> your your role within the rotational program in the trading desk to your point nobody asked you to become integrated into what they were doing to go down to the trading floor to do the extra work to come on the weekends but you wanted to do that because you wanted to show that you were not only interested in the position but it's something that you personally wanted so you're willing to do more and i sometimes think that gets lost because people want to have some sort of i don't know if it's a golden bullet but they want some sort of advice to make things easier or more achievable and the answer is it's not that it's easier it's just you have to do the hard things that no one else wants to do sometimes in order to be successful and there's no way around it you've got to be able to you have to be willing to work harder in order to move more quickly and there's not another way around it unless you're working for some sort of company where nepotism's involved or something else like that <laughs> i don't know what you think about that yeah I think you have to work harder, and of course, I, I, you know, I love the word grit. You need grit. You need, um, as my dad would say, the killer instinct. But at the end of the day, you also have to enjoy what you're doing because if you yep. don't, you burn out. And whether you're an athlete and you are the most gifted basketball player on the planet, if you don't truly love the sport, you're never going to reach your full capacity. And I think, again, whether it's sports or the workplace, um, I wouldn't have put in all those hours just because I wanted the job and, and the opportunity to make more money. I actually enjoyed learning and I enjoyed the experience of um, pushing myself. So right. I think that's what oftentimes people who choose a career and, and choose something because of either the prestige or the paycheck associated with it, your longevity and your shelf life will suffer in some way if there isn't the passion at the bottom of it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the motivations. Like what is the right motivation to drive you to excellence? I, I always talk when I look at, you know, people that we work with and I just ask them basic questions. Like, don't you want to know more about what it is that we do? Don't you have this internal drive, not just to take someone's word for something as law, but to, to gain enough information yourself that you can make your own determinations around certain things um, so that you're able to accurately portray a fact to someone because you've actually done the research and you know intricately how a technology works or what the margin on a business would be without doing the work yourself. How do you really know that it just don't be a parrot. That, that's my, that's my general advice to people. Don't listen to someone and just parrot what they say. You need to build up mm -hmm. your own knowledge base so then you can take that information and accurately portray it in your own way to somebody else. You also have to have a view, and uh, my first boss on the trading floor many years ago used to tell us as, as junior traders, I actually don't care if you're right or wrong, but you need to have a view, and I yeah. want that view to have a well-thought-out, supported process, and as long as you went through the right process to form that opinion, there's always going to be things you get wrong, but we can't question the process. So I think if what I'm hearing from you is that sometimes people don't do their own research and don't form their own opinion and they just take somebody else's words. And of course you're going to be able to poke holes in that Swiss cheese <laughs> argument. Because <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's only one layer, one layer deep. Yeah. So you become a trader and yep. 
in addition in addition to being a trader you made it your own personal mission to create environments where women could connect with other women in similar positions and so my question is first how did you do that and then second i mean the answer may be obvious to to the listeners but specific to you why did you feel that that was important well i i think i stumbled into some of the things that i wound up putting together but i remember um first off there was very few women on trading floors when i started my career it, it certainly improved uh by the time i left but generally um there, there weren't many, and there definitely weren't many on the trading desk themselves. So for the majority of my career, uh, I was the most senior female on the trading desk and didn't have somebody in my immediate group to look up to as a role model. But I remember um, at one point pulling together a client dinner with two female clients that I knew, but they didn't know each other. And the three of us went out to a steak restaurant, actually, and we had so much fun that night just sharing stories and experiences and talking about things that um, it seems that only women really understood and that the guys didn't have to deal with or just, you know, making fun of the guys. Whatever it was, we had such a connection. And when I think back, those two women – 20 years later, are still friends with each other. And I think that that was the beginning of something when I realized that there's an opportunity here. Uh, I know a whole bunch of women, but they don't all know each other. And I wound up hosting a few events internally for more junior women. You know, the first time I, I did it at my apartment and, and paid for the wine and cheese myself and said, I know all of these wonderful women. They don't all know each other. I think this is something that would be really valuable. And particularly for junior women, you're not getting invited to client dinners. You're not uh, necessarily getting to, to benefit from what at the time was some of the more fun aspects of working on Wall Street. And that's just something that I think was under uh, appreciated by many people. Just, just paying for somebody's drinks and, and inviting them to something. So I started hosting events like that and then eventually word started getting out internally in the business that Megan was doing these things, and I wound up getting them to agree to start paying for more formal uh, events for both internal women, and then we expanded it to client programs. And um, in our business, we wound up hosting annual female client-focused events in Boston, in Chicago, in London, and it really took off uh, and, and recently, I was invited back by Barclays to actually moderate a panel of women in the Boston area a few months ago. And it, it was the event that I had first started while, while I was still there. And it was, it was really special to be part of that on the other side and see that they were still continuing that tradition. Um, I, I just think it's something that – and maybe this is something that affects – all diverse populations. I can't necessarily speak to it except on the female front. But right. um, when you when you pull them together and have an opportunity to network and engage and share experiences, it, it just deepens um, for me the sort of culture, the the morale. It, it deepens your 
passion for the firm and the organization that you work for. And over the years, there was certainly lots of peaks and valleys, I think, on um, the internal morale front and, and still is on Wall Street. But that's really where, you know, it wasn't something that anybody told me to do. It just happened organically where the more I was doing it, the more I, I saw how people uh, welcomed it, wanted it, right. and it, it made a difference. Yeah, I mean, I've got <laughs> literally chills um, for a number of reasons, but just thinking about it, the story itself has a center point where the initial dinner with the two women that you referenced was fun and something that was authentic and wasn't something that was a corporate mandate that was forced to occur in order to quote unquote look good. It's It's just something that that happened. And then as you saw, and this is like the philosophical human element of it, I mean, in today's society, <clears throat> it's becoming harder and harder to connect to people because of technology right. and because of um, technology and, and how technology keeps us connected to, particularly in financial services, our job on a regular basis, that, that level of connection with other people where you're just sitting around having an adult beverage or a soda or whatever you want to drink and talking about things that are similar because you're you're working in a similar uh, environment, you're dealing with similar people. There's something special to, to that. Just that simple activity, it, it can mm -hmm. be really powerful. And sometimes, sometimes what I think happens is that you try to take – an activity that's very organic and fun and meaningful and quote unquote professionalize it. And when you try mm -hmm. to do that, sometimes the results can be positive, but unless it's, unless you're really doing something that people want to be a part of and feel comfortable with the group of individuals that they're in and sharing and, and having those authentic moments, then it just, I, I've seen it sometimes fall flat on its face. I, I don't, I don't know if you've agreed totally. or if you've seen similar scenarios like that. Well, and we used to, um, you know, over the years, it became an issue where many clients could not attend an event unless there was a business angle to it. So we right. had to have a speaker or a presentation. You couldn't just have a dinner or cocktails, that sort of thing, um, or even a golf outing. There had to be a business component to it. And I was on a lot of those planning committees over the years, and we would sit there in a room trying to come up with topics that women wanted to hear about, wanted to talk about. And I can tell you firsthand, nobody wants to go to another panel for the rest of our life on the way to be a working mom and a work-life balance. <laughs> I mean, it's just, right. it's so overdone. And, you know, like, how, how are we going to talk about breastfeeding and whatever it is? But um, so that was one side of it. And, you know, the other thing is, so many of the events that I went to, the, the co-ed, the regular Wall Street events, were totally planned for and, um, you know, with men in mind. I can't right. tell you the number of nights that the only wine choices were Chardonnay and Cabernet. And I said, who the heck planned this thing and why is it at a steakhouse? Or, you know, and so when we would do the women's events, I would say very clearly to the, you know, event planner, I want 
Prosecco, I want Rosé, I want Sauvignon Blanc, I want Pinot Noir. And that seems like a simple thing, but that's right. what women want to drink. And they never thought about that when they were planning these big dinners for clients or internal events, because the majority of the firm had always been men. Right. And, and that, that leads to another question where I think that, you know, just in, in the course of of back and forth, we've started to to answer a little bit, which is, you know, how, how do how do we create meaningful engagements around inclusivity and diversity, not just from male, female, but across all different types of inclusion? And, you know, thinking about what you just said, it's first you have to be authentic. You have to you have to not try to force something to happen, but rather create situations where it's possible to get individuals together to talk about all sorts of different things. And then secondarily, you have to kind of smash whatever stereotypes you have around what an event should look like and think about what an event could like look like if it were to fit the, the quote unquote demographic or a different way of thinking about event planning. I don't know how to say it in, in a in a PC way, but think about it in a non-stereotypical way, but think about it in a way that would be open to everybody, right? You're, mm-hmm. Just the wine selection or the venue for the event, it doesn't have to be something to your point where you're going to a steakhouse and you're only serving red wine and bourbon. I mean, there has to be a more open-minded approach towards creating scenarios which would give us a higher level of success to have something that's actually meaningful versus something that's very Uh, prescribed. I have a a better example than even the steakhouse. I can't (laughs) tell you the number of dinners I had to do in a private room at a cigar bar in midtown Manhattan because somebody we worked with had a membership at the cigar bar and we could get the private room for free. And then, by the way, we only served you Cabernet and Chardonnay. So it really was very, very limiting. And I think when you think about what's a meaningful client event, what's going to be a well-attended, um, something people are going to want to go to, people don't have enough time in their lives as it is. You said, you know, we sit in front of not only four screens, you know, a lot of <laughs> people these days, but it's four screens and, you know, an earpiece in your ear and a um, iPad and a cell phone, you know, with notifications going on in front of you all day. And, oh, by the way, your watch also uh, lighting up. So people want to go sit in front of the screen after work. And especially as we see more women staying in the workforce, you know, to ask them to attend an event after work, it's really got to be something that they're willing to get a babysitter for or make other arrangements and not be home to put the kids to bed. And so when I think about the successful events, it's either the opportunity to connect with people that they don't otherwise have a chance to connect with right. or, or meet somebody that is really valuable. But, but really, if we take that farther, it's how will that help them in their career? And either that's, as we talked about maybe earlier, advancement, opening up new doors or what we haven't touched about yet is the bottom line. Right. How is this an advisor who can meet new clients? How is this an advisor who can actually get more money out of existing clients? Um, 
people want to attend things and learn things that I think will practically help them drive profitability in their business. And if it's not someone who's necessarily motivated by profitability, but maybe it's someone who's maybe more aligned with the value driver of helping people. Yeah. So are there... Are there charity events we could be doing? Volunteer, you know, um, my teams over the years, we've volunteered at soup kitchens together, and it's so much fun, and you feel good about what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, not a not a, a commercial per se, but one of the things that we've been really focused on at Dynasty is, is ensuring that, you know, we have an eye towards creating an employee base that is diverse. And statistically speaking, I believe we crossed more than 40% of females um, as part of Dynasty. And in a couple weeks, we're having over 70 females come to St. Petersburg for our first annual uh, women's event uh, that we're, we're really excited about as well. And it comes to a question that, I, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for our corporate strategy, but I'll just speak for a strategy overall. I, I believe that organizations that are more diverse have a higher likelihood of success and diversity does in fact have a positive impact on the bottom line if only because you now have new and and hopefully not hopefully new and insightful ways of thinking about the same problem versus all of the same type of people thinking about situations in only one way. I mean, as you work as a communications consultant, as you go into some of these companies, I mean, how important is diversity to the bottom bottom line from your perspective? Oh, I think it's huge. Um, and if if we connect the dots to um, you know Dynasty, even it's good for business. Dynasty, but it's actually what your client—it's evolving to mirror your clients. Right. And yeah, you know, I saw that on the institutional side, and you know, it, I think it's, it's extremely relevant on, on the retail side of the business as well, where more and more women are taking control of their finances and having a seat at the table, and they are more comfortable with female advisors. So, if you're trying at the end of the day to continually grow assets grow clients, it's not just going after the old white men anymore. <laughs> it's it's right. trying to be creative about who are we tapping. And, and um, you know, if I was a female client and, and people were trying to come pitch for my account, I'm going to pick somebody that I trust and it's going to be a relationship. And that has to also come with um, this is an organization that I'm aligned with from a value perspective, and it has to be genuine. Right. Um, there's enough firms out there that are doing it just to check the boxes and, and say they're doing it. And, um, you know, I actually think some firms are overshooting because they were behind, and, and not just on the gender front, but in, in some initiatives out there in general, um, you know, whether it's trying to keep up with the tech companies and letting employees on Wall Street wear sneakers and jeans to work, uh, I think you see that with some of the, the hiring initiatives and the diversity initiatives. And it's one thing to say you're going to do it, but until it starts really um, 
playing out in the organization, and and women are either in leadership positions or right. um, continually given more and more opportunities. And it has the firm has to take a risk on people, and not just women. Right. It's it's typically always been the men that were given the stretch assignments or thought of for the opportunity, because the people in the room thinking about who should get that next uh, promotion were typically the men. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a that's a great point, and you you definitely alluded to some of the statistics in the wealth management or, or retail brokerage industry, which is, you know, predominantly a male dominated industry. And again, I know in some of the work that you do, the, the statistics don't lie. The transition of wealth from the old school thinking to females, younger generation that have a completely different mindset and approach to trust and understanding and wanting to take an active role in wealth management. And there's a whole different approach to a female client, a next generation client versus, you know, the middle aged or older retired age white male. I mean, how do you, when you go into I know this is an interesting topic to, to discuss, but when you go in and you're doing your consulting, you know, what are some of the things that you try to make people cognizant of in terms of the differences in communication style or just approach uh, between genders? Or maybe it's just being cognizant yeah. that you're actually talking to uh, one <laughs> versus the other, you know, versus directing well, all your right. comments to the dude, you know? <laughs> Totally, totally. You have a husband and wife in there, and how many advisors walk in and immediately assume the husband is the breadwinner and he's the decision maker, where he could stay home with four kids and the wife could be the you know rock star. So I think um, you know across wealth management, across financial services in general, it has unfortunately gotten to the point where the services are largely commoditized, and at the end of the day, people you know effectively zero fees, and you can go to any of the um, brokerage shops for zero fees. When you, when you are paying an advisor and there's, and there's a deeper platform and it's, it's that true wealth management element, um, I think at the root of that is the relationship element, the people element. And so when we come in and work with wealth management teams or individuals now and, and talk about communications, it's opening their eyes to these types of softer skills. And, you know, what you don't want to see is somebody who's got an unbelievable network of referrals and they get introduced to some, some young female entrepreneurs and then these, this team of men go in the room and they don't win the business. And right. they totally turned her off. And and she may pick somebody that's got a, either a worse track record or doesn't have as diverse of a platform in the capacity, or maybe the fees are higher. But maybe it was a female or maybe it was a male, but maybe that person asked her a lot of questions and spent the time slowing down the sales process to understand her business, how she made her money, what were her values, what's important to her. You know, when you think about retirement, what does that look like to you? So we spend a lot of time with clients teaching them about asking open-ended questions and and making sure they've earned the right to ask for business and not selling too soon. 
and it's it's leading the client through very strategic, um, smart questioning techniques to letting the client feel like they're making the decision on their own and not being sold into something. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. No. I mean, absolutely. I think that is that is really challenging. It's a challenging skill to teach. Um, it's even more challenging within our industry only because I think from time to time there's an inclination upon the first meeting or, or candidly any meeting to prove to another individual, regardless of their gender, of how smart you are. You should be with me because I'm really smart. It's the IQ argument versus what I've seen is... As, as equally important, if not more important, is your EQ. Like, are you listening yeah. to me as a prospect or a client, and do you understand me? I mean, I understand that you have a CFA, a SEMA, a CFP, and that you can do trigonometry in your head. All those things are really cool, but it means nothing to me if you don't get me. Like, you need to understand right. what makes what's important to me, what's important to my family, what my goals and objectives are, and all the Monte Carlos in the world are not going to be able to gain my trust. And so <clears throat> to your point, I, I think it's a different, and by the way, no matter what the person, no matter what the gender of the person is, everyone is different and unique. That's what makes us human beings. So being able to train people to be open to that type of conversation, to listening and not trying to walk into a room and impress someone with your credentials, because candidly, that's not enough anymore. It never was in the first place, but certainly not today with the relative commoditization of just access to financial products and services. Yeah, we spend a ton of time uh, undoing <laughs> and editing people's bios and working through how they introduce themselves, because uh, the nature of, of people and the way we default is to spend far more time talking about ourselves and going back to what we did in high school and how old we were when we learned to ski and ride a bike uh, that's completely irrelevant. And, and we really work with clients to get as quickly as possible off ourselves and, and to what's relevant to the person sitting across the table or on the other end of the phone. And it's the ability to talk about your experience and talk about your background in a way that is beneficial to the audience and the receiver of that information. And so the way you introduce yourself and the way your bio um, is stated should absolutely change depending on who the client is that day and what the meeting is focused on. You, know, you can take your experience and, and tweak that and message that very differently based on who the audience is. And a huge part of this is spending the time before the meeting thinking about what is this person that we're going to meet with this afternoon? You know, who is she or he? What do they care about? What are their drivers? You can't always get that off of LinkedIn. Um, but can you spend a little bit more time than you probably did, which was zero to begin with, with the person who gave you the referral? You know, can you ask some of the questions? You know, like, I mean, it, it's Got it. the I'm classic, ready to go. like... <laughs> Name, email, so, phone number, address. Just show me when to show up. Yeah. Let me know. Right. And, oh, hey, guess what? I'm cold calling you, and I'm, all I'm going to do is talk about myself before right. I even ask you how your day is. So um, you get it. It's, it's, but those you know, uh, advisors are, are um, goal-oriented and, and number-driven a lot of times, and 
um, are, are, and I get it, that, that is ultimately what makes them successful, but it's a far longer sales process with some of the newer diverse um, relationships. And I think that's where the challenge to, um, to get advisors to think more about the EQ and having that self-awareness and to think about their audience as a personality and how does that person want to be communicated with? I, I can tell you right now, my advisor leaves me voicemails and it drives me nuts. I'm never going to leave. I'm never going to listen to a voicemail. Just right. send me an email or a text message. So sometimes it's those simple things. Yeah. No, I tell people I have a rule. If I see that your voicemail is longer than 35 seconds, just assume that I did not listen to it, unfortunately for you. I mean, I appreciate the detail when I see the minute 41 second <laughs> voicemails, but in the, in that time, you could have just, to your right. point, called me back or, you know, sent me a text or sent me an email. Uh, I just had a daughter. Hooray, kids. Yes. And, um, you know, if, if, if you were to give her three pieces of advice uh, if she wanted to enter financial services, what would they be? I love this one because this is where I, I have so many things that, that truly haunt me to this day that I wish I had done if I could you know, rewind the clock to a younger Megan. Um, I think number one there is to know your value and then be willing to negotiate on that and and what comes with that is, is being comfortable talking about compensation with friends or with uh, outside resources such as headhunters and just getting transparency into knowing what, again, you are worth, your role is worth, and then taking it a step further and asking for what you deserve. Um, now I was paid I well that. over the years, yeah, but I, I, I know I could have been paid a lot, lot more. Um, and I just never... Um, and, and to that note, I think point number two dovetails nicely with that, which is you really have to learn to speak up. And women in particular uh, like to keep our heads down and do a good job and think that our work will be recognized. And that, that worked pretty well over the years in school and when we were growing up and um, you got good grades and you scored well on tests. You made the soccer team because you were a good player. But all of a sudden, you know, there's a great phrase and there's a book out there. What got you there isn't going to get you. What got you here isn't going to get you there. And yeah. so once you get into your career and into the workplace, just keeping your head down and doing a good job is unfortunately not enough. And you need to be comfortable with speaking up, becoming your own advocate, making sure you are not invisible in an organization. Uh, and I think the last point that I would say there is, is if you're not getting what you deserve and people aren't recognizing your contributions or accomplishments, that don't settle and don't just stay in a job or a seat because it's a paycheck and, and because of whatever else it gives you. If you don't feel fulfilled, um, be willing to walk away. And, you know, again, something women aren't naturally great at is take a risk. Right. Well, those are, those are really, really special. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I also 
really enjoyed our conversation today, Megan. Thank you for uh, for being on the podcast. Let's make sure that we uh, we get together in a couple weeks, hopefully down here in Florida. Yes, Florida sunshine beats Boston winter right now <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I want to thank everybody who tuned in to today's podcast and a special thank you to Meg for participating. And to all you listeners, please stay tuned as we will be sending out another podcast in the near future.